the expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to Going There, the crossroads where music and mental health meet. This season of Going There is brought to you by AbbVie, v who is driving the pursuit of better mental health. Over the last 30 years, AbbVie v scientists and clinicians have worked to tackle the complexity of mental illness and today offer a portfolio of medicines and a pipeline of innovation that spans depression, anxiety, bipolar 1 disorder, and schizophrenia. To learn more about AbbVie's work to support individuals throughout their mental health journey, please visit www.abv.com or follow at AbbV on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and LinkedIn. Today, we are talking with singer-songwriter and musician Rabel. You may know Rabel from the singles The Village and Wish You Well. His music has been described as a refined, masterfully written, and cathartically performed collection that recounts love, heartbreaks, personal discoveries, and devastating realizations. He's also been featured performing on songs with artists such as Afrojack, Marshmello, and Kesha, and has been a songwriter for songs performed by Pink, Adam Lambert, and Backstreet Boys, among others. Rabel has a new EP out called Chapter of Me that includes the single Happier. Check out all of Rabel's music, tour, and merch info at rabelmusic.com. Now, on the Going There podcast, we have the tough conversations to address important issues so we can learn from each other, challenge the stigma of mental illness, and get the care we need. And one of the most important issues that we face on our mental health journey is how we open ourselves up to, interpret, and potentially act upon feedback from others. And this is especially confusing when it's feedback about something that others want to change about us. And that's because our social connections and relationships may be very important to us for a variety of reasons. To have fun, to talk, to help us when we're struggling, or providing networking opportunities for jobs. Whatever type of relationship we want from others, it tends to improve our self-concept and overall mental health if we are connecting with people in the way we want. And so if we receive feedback from others that there's something about us that they think we should change, it may feel very frightening. We may feel fragile and not ready to hear certain types of feedback, or we are so concerned that the person delivering the feedback will disconnect from us that we become overwhelmed and either lash out in anger or people please and try to be as accommodating as possible. Oftentimes, there is no clear playbook as to how to interpret feedback from others. 
So for example, in our discussion, Rabel talks about how he received a great deal of feedback from people in his life about his sexuality. People who say they loved him, cared about him, and wanted what was best for him questioned whether embracing his sexuality as a gay man was the right choice for him. And the song The Village sends a clear message of how Rabel thinks that feedback should be received. And the clear message is, there's nothing wrong with you, there's something wrong with the village. And this was what was best for Rabel's health and well-being and ability to lead an authentic life. But Rabel also discusses his struggle with addiction and how similarly, people who said they loved him, cared about him, and wanted what was best for him said that he needed to get sober. And similarly, in this case, Rabel also did not necessarily accept that feedback. But in the case of addiction, his choice was not beneficial to his leading a healthy and authentic life. So how do we know when and how to heed the advice, feedback, and even pressure from others, and when to choose a different path from what's suggested? Now, one of the things that Rabel and I discuss is what we called the, quote, me machine. The idea is that it would be optimal in most cases to think about the feedback we are given through the lens of our own well-being. Specifically, we can ask ourselves, if we follow the feedback presented, how will the decision impact our ability to love ourselves and others and function in the world? So from that perspective, it became clear for Rabel that denying his sexuality would have worsened his ability to love himself and others, and therefore would not have been the right choice for him, even if it caused him stress in his existing social world. In contrast, Rabel eventually began to realize that heeding the advice of others regarding addiction would improve his ability to love himself and others. And we discussed how difficult it is to make these decisions in the moment, especially when we are receiving pressure, possibly from friends and loved ones, on our mental health journey. Now, as we progress through this season of Going There, our goal is to bring you, the audience, further into the conversation. We'd love to hear your feedback, questions you have that have been sparked by our conversations with these incredible artists, and topics you'd love to hear addressed. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. These help other folks find their way into the conversation so they can go there with us. So let's go there and listen to what Rabel has to say. Hey, Rabel, welcome to Going There. Hello, hello. How are you? I am doing well. Thank you. So let's start with a song that you have written that you feel like is particularly representative of your mental health journey. Yeah, I think the first thing that comes to mind is a song that came out not too long ago called One Drink Away. I'm sober now for the second time in my life. I was sober. The first time I got sober, I got out of rehab on my 21st birthday, which is like such a bummer. (laughs) So I never had a legal drink, which I mean, I'm thankful for. But after about, I want to say I almost hit five years or four years. I have no concept of time. Could have been the drinking or I just black it out in my head. But I started drinking again for just under a year. I was always told like, oh, you pick up right where you left off and, you know, I kind of was like, nah, like I can, I'm probably different than, than whatever they're talking about. They're probably stupid or whatever. Like I thought I was, I don't know, that's snowflake syndrome. But so I started drinking and I picked up right where I left off. I think the first night I was hiding a bottle of Jack Daniels in my hotel room. I was in Hawaii 
from my then boyfriend. So he wouldn't. So he would be like, oh, he had one drink. That's fine. Not like, oh, he went to the gift shop and bought a bottle of Jack Daniels and hid it behind the television. And so it's something, and now I've been sober now, thank God for eight plus years, eight and a half years, something like that. And so it's something that I always wanted to write about or not necessarily wanted to, but felt, just felt the pull to do that. But I didn't know how, I didn't know what snapshot of sobriety do you capture in a song? What's the most powerful and what's the most true and honest thing? And so it was kind of a really interesting exercise, I guess, writing that song. I wrote it with three really good friends, Ali Tamposi, who I got pretty much got sober with, which is amazing. And she's a writer, an incredible writer. And we used to be like Thumb and Louise, like, oh my gosh, we have done like close your eyes and dream up the craziest thing you could do. We did that. And Eric Leva, who wrote a bunch of this project with me and Sam DeJong, who produced the entire thing and wrote a bunch of it. So it's important for me, especially if I'm trying to tackle something that's really delicate and personal to me, that I be in a room that feels safe and that feels like it can not only go there, but hold the space to where like that day I had a full like meltdown. Because I think I went in to write like my sobriety Rachel Platten fight song, like this overcoming anthem, like you can do it. Look, I did it. And as it unfolded, it turned into this like, oh, I'm scared to death of this thing that lives inside of me. It really surprised me. I I think I went in that day thinking I was going to write one version of something and came out with a very different version that felt probably more true than, you know, this fight song, like, look, I've completely overcome my addiction and now everything is fine. It's like, no, that's literally not true. I made sure, and and there's a bookend at the end of the song that was really important to me to offer something that felt really hopeful and really positive. And so it landed in this place where I feel like it really expresses like a healthy respect and fear for, if I'm really honest, I'm scared to death of my addiction. One Drink Away um, just sort of touched on, I guess, the biggest theme of of my sobriety or the thing that felt most true. And and I had had a conversation with this guy at a local smoke shop. I do. I'm on nicotine is like the last thing I have. And so I'm on these little pouches. They're like kind of gross, but I'm like, you can have them. You can have them for as long as you want. And I was buying them and and I forget how we started talking about it, but I brought up sobriety and he was like, oh, I'm 11 months sober. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. And we started talking about it. And he said, I said, how is it? Like, what, how do you feel? 11 months is like incredible. You're about to hit like this huge milestone. He said, yeah, for me, the biggest decision I make every day still is when I drive home and I get off the freeway, I can turn left or I can turn right. If I turn right, I'm going home. If I turn left, I'm not sure what's going to happen because his like the liquor store he used to go to is to the left. So I put that in the second verse, but that really like, I mean, I have goosebumps now. It, it just hit me how real that is. And like, for me, it's like when I get on an airplane and I'm all by myself, I love airplanes and I'm a brat. So a lot of times I'm up in the, up in the front where they're carrying trays of various spirits to help you on your journey. And uh, uh, airplanes and hotels for me are still kind of the, at my best, it's totally fine. But at my worst, it's it's a few layers of thought. It's a few little micro decisions that I make. I was like, you're getting on this airplane. Everything's gonna be fine. You're gonna have a ginger ale with a little squirt of lime. You're gonna have your little nicotine. 
and you're going to have a great flight. And then the hotels I always call, or if I'm traveling for work, my managers are so incredible and they'll call and be like, clear every drop of alcohol from the room. Because I say, otherwise the bottles start talking to me. But just that fear of, of knowing that I can't have another drink. That's not, a, that's not in the realm of possibility. And if I do, I have no idea at all what will happen. And they say like, it'll end in three ways, like death institutions, I forget what the third is. I got to read, read my book. But for me, I, I just know that I will, I will have then no control. You know, Tito's will run my life and decide what, what I'll do. And I've, and I've, I've done it enough times to, to accept that as fact. And so the song was really an interesting exploration of that for me. I went back into my therapist several times after we wrote that song because I was like, I didn't know that I'm still scared to death, honestly. And she's like, that's not a bad thing to be. The reality is it is scary. And so I didn't want to shy away from that. And then the end of the song, it was important to me to sort of reflect on how like it sounds maybe silly to someone that doesn't know addiction or hasn't experienced that in themselves or someone close to them. But like something as simple as like, oh, I remember everything that happened last night or like I got home and I remember getting home and parking my car. I know I locked it. I know I locked my front door and here's my little dog and he's fine. That, especially at the beginning of my sobriety, that felt like I won, I I ran a marathon and I won. I'm like, oh my gosh, I went and saw a movie and I came home and I put my car in the garage. Like, so it was important to me to have sort of a moment of, I, I describe that ending moment as if like the clouds parted and the sun is beaming down and you're just like, I'm in the middle of a field being like, thank God, like a, one more day I'm here and everything's okay. You know, you had a, a interesting quote, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but it was something about it, it has to exist. It has to be real. It has to have the respect it deserves. And I remember from the quote, not a thousand percent sure what you were you referring to addiction? Yeah, in that I think sense? so. So can we can we talk a little bit about that quote? Because I thought that was a very cool quote. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm a big compartmentalizer and I'm very stubborn. And I get that from my grandma Rabel, who gave that to my father, <laughs> who passed that down to me. My dad, one of his favorite quotes is by Judge Judy. If it's not, if it doesn't make sense, it's not true. I'm a big, like, I can will and white knuckle kind of a lot. And some, I view that in its best as a really positive thing. And I'm thankful that that has been kind of ingrained in me of like, you, my dad is big on, here's the situation. This is the reality. You don't have to like it. You have to accept it. You have to choose what you're going to do with it. And you make a decision and that's that. And then you can let it go and you can move on. And I'm not the best at letting it go and moving on. I'm like, well, here, I've accepted this and now I'm going to do this. But this is still really sad and messed up. And for me, I think in my own sobriety journey, I have to kind of not constantly like every day, but I when I have my self check-ins, whenever that happens, I have to remind myself how real, because it's anything that happened eight years ago, it's kind of easy to be like, oh, that's eight years ago. What's it like that? Does, that's not here anymore. You're even I think cellular. What is it like every seven or eight years or something? You're like, I'm a new I'm a new person. None of me from back then is here. And I think for me, it's important to remind myself there is this thing inside of me that I believe kind of wants to kill me, kind of wants to just self-destruct. And and I've seen it at its darkest. I've hit moments in my life that I never saw a way out of. 
and I've written the note and I've, it's taken me to places that I didn't think I would ever get to. And then I, that while I was there, I never thought I would get out of. And so I try to hold that not in a way of crippling fear, but in that way of a respect of like, whoa, that is really powerful and really strong. And I have no control. If I open that door, I don't know what's going to come out of it. And I try to, in those moments of I'm getting on the airplane and they're holding the little champagne flute and it looks so nice and it's branded, but it says Delta Airlines on it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so cute. <laughs> I need to remind myself it's not cute. That's actually incredibly dangerous. And again, not in some preachy way. I'm not like a, I'm not, and no judgment on like preachy sober people, but that's not my vibe. It doesn't help me to tell everyone around, you know, you're drinking poison. I'm like, no, like, are you kidding? If anyone understands how fun you're, how much fun you're about to have, it's me. But for me, that's not fun. The fun doesn't end fun. And so I just tried to, and even in the song, I think was a big old accidental exploration of that, of that fear, but trying to keep it as a healthy fear, maybe a capital F fear, I would say, where it doesn't, Again, it's not crippling, but it's just like, wow, this is a real thing and this is a true thing. And this is in me for the rest of my life. I have now accepted that this is part of me. Whatever it is, if it's a genetic predisposition, you know, there's all these different like scientific and I've gone to many, many centers of rehabilitation um, that have different vibes on what it is and how if it's you're just self-medicating, which I for me... I didn't really vibe with that. I believe it's a possibly a genetic predisposition. Again, I'm not a scientist. This is not. To me also, it kind of doesn't matter because I'm like, it's here. So it could be this or it could be this or it could be this, but it's here and I have to respect that and I have to accept that. They talk about like, I'm not really in the program anymore, but one thing that I loved from it was the radical acceptance where you have to just accept this is, this is true. This is reality. And then much like my dad and my grandma, so what are you going to do with it? And for me, I'm like, I'm going to be scared of that. And I'm going to go in the other direction. And I'm going to, I change, I drastically change the way I operate my life. I, you, you have to be open you ha- with yourself and with the people around you. And I've learned to say, hey guys, can we, is it okay if we have dinner tonight and nobody drinks and no one talks about drinking and no one even looks at the bar and no one and we throw the wine menu to the in the bushes. And those moments are thankfully kind of rare. But you have to do that because for me, if I keep that inside, then I'm staring at everyone. Wow, that looks like a nice little libation. And then I'm like, I'm like feeling, I'm like ghost feeling like, oh, I bet it's hitting your brain now. And now it's, and it's like, oh, no, 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 no. Icky, icky. This idea that you brought up about moving on, it, it's very interesting. I'm not a hundred percent sure where that came from for people. Because if you look at anything that we do, we don't celebrate someone's birthday once and then move on. We don't exercise once and move on. We don't eat healthy, you know, for a day once. Right. We don't pray once and move on. It's 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 a very interesting concept that that somehow within the context of emotional, behavioral, the whole mental health journey, if you will, that the concept of moving on, it's it's almost as if it was a game of chicken a while ago where someone was like, listen, we're going to dangle this carrot in front of you that you're going to get to move on. 
And that's going to, that's going to motivate you because if you know the truth, that there's really no such thing as moving on, you're always working with something. You're always struggling with it. You're always reinterpreting it, but, but that, that doesn't have to be a bad thing. That could actually be a very powerful and positive thing. But I think somewhere along the way that got, people just decided that that's the model. And I, I honestly wish that the concept of moving on would move on. Like, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I think it's, it's because it sets people up for thinking for themselves, why aren't I over this? Yeah. And we look at anything in history that, that matters to us. Like, so for example, like I, I am Jewish and I don't every single day think about the Holocaust or my, my family, you know, generations before and all that, that's, it's not something that's there every day in my life. But if someone said, Hey, I think we need to move on from the Holocaust. I'd sort of be like, Ooh, why do you, what are you trying to, what are you trying to do there? Yeah. And, and I think I, I really like the idea of what you're saying is that there's gotta be a respect for, I think our demons as something, you know, our demons are not playing checkers. They're playing chess. And you can't say like, oh, this seems fine. Like you got to think 12 moves ahead. Like I think you were doing not just like, oh, if this happens, then I'll take a drink. It's like, no, because because a smart demon is a smart demon is not going to do it that way. They know you're not just going to like say, hey, here's a drink. It's like, no, you got to. Hey, how about that? How about that friend of yours? That friend was really great. When was the last time you talked with them? Yeah, Yeah. You should give them a call. Oh, wouldn't it be great to get together? Where was that place you used to hang out? Right. You know, and soon, eventually down the road, you're kind of like, ah, you're making the left off the freeway. You're making the left off the freeway. And so I I really appreciate the concept that you were saying about that, about that respect. It's just, it's so, so important, but also just the idea that that does not have to feel for a lot of people that feels like this horrible sentence, like you're damned to have to struggle with this. And it's like, it, it's, I think it's almost the opposite. It's kind of like, like you talk about radical acceptance. It's like walking into that paradox where you could say every day, listen, this is something that is dark and it's scary and it's there. And to some degree, I have to look it in the eye and say, it's there. I know it's there. Now, paradoxically, if I can go into that dark place, I, I, I have more of a sense of maybe how I can reach out into the light. But if you just try to reach into the light, by, by ignoring the darkness, right. I mean, in anyone who's been through it and anyone who struggled with any kind of problem knows that darkness needs attention. And if you don't give it, it's going to grab it. And yeah. you just don't know where, you don't know when. Yeah. No, I, uh, that is really good uh, insight. I, li- I like those thoughts. It, it is kind of for me that thing of you have to, I'm really good at just kind of blocking. And I've learned you kind of just have to look it dead in the face and be like, I see that you are right there. That is terrifying. I'm going to not, maybe we don't have to have a conversation right now, but I see you and you're over there in the corner and you can stay in the corner. That's fine. And I'm going to just be over here and then I'm going to go. It's not even necessarily reasoning with it, but just, just accepting. I think just as like many things, like something happens and you can either decide to ignore it, like even... I have a, this is a terrible metaphor, but I tore my labrum in my shoulder 12 years ago and I just have ignored it for 12 years. And guess what? It still hurts every single day. And I have, it's turned into like chronic pain (laughs) and it's because I literally ignored it and I didn't say, Oh, maybe I should go try this or maybe I should go try this or maybe I should go try this. And I think with addiction, I think you can, I've done it myself where it's like, if I just ignore this, it'll go away. And honestly, the first time I got sober, it worked for like 
couple of years. Like it's, you, you can ignore. It's amazing what you can ignore. But at the same time, I think when I was ignoring that, you're missing, you can, you're then ignoring like all the lows, but you're also kind of cutting out the highs because you have to sort of numb yourself in this way where of not accepting. And for me, even when something amazing happens, it's sort of just as tempting as if something terrible happens because it's just that response of like heightened emotion, whether it's happy or sad, was sort of my cue to go have a drink or have some drugs or whatever that is. So the ignoring doesn't, you can't hold on tight to that ignoring because it then the moment I looked up at it, I'm like, oh, now it's like all over the room. Whereas before, maybe it was just in the corner and I just didn't even look. And then I didn't notice that it was completely wrapping itself around my entire being. And then I'm in Hawaii at a swim up Mai Tai bar. And then now it's game over. And I didn't even play. I played no hands until the moment of truth. And I was like, oh, Mai Tai would be so cute right now. I'm in Hawaii. When am I in Hawaii? Never. And then it's like, cue a year of insane drinking and depression. You know, it, it's interesting because I want to I want to pivot a little bit to the village and the idea that there's something wrong in the village. And and this is this is such a powerful concept because fundamentally we are always not always, I shouldn't say that. A, a lot of the time it's very natural to assume that if there's something that feels wrong in the world, that the problem is with us. And it's very difficult to, and part of it is because we know every nook and cranny of what's going on with us. And we only know what other people are presenting to us. So we sometimes have more knowledge of all the things that, that feel difficult for us. And so the, one of the things that I, I have found that's very, very difficult whether it's my mental health journey or working with people, is that there, there are some things to me, and not everybody agrees with this, but that feel very self-evident that it's definitely not me, it's them. So for example, I think that Village has been, a, I, I think, seen as a song championing the queer community. If people are either gay or trans or, or curious, whatever, wherever you are in that. And if people are not supporting that part of your journey to really be able to say that there's a, there's not a problem here with you, there's, there's a problem in the village. And I think that to some degree, I, I would, for me, and again, I, not everybody would agree with this, but I would put together people who challenge sexuality, challenge gender as someone who similarly is saying like, hey, you know, maybe a drink isn't so bad. Maybe you should wear. There's certain things that feel to me very clear cut, like you were saying, you know, kind of compartmentalizing. And it's so powerful and necessary that we have that voice that says, wait a minute, this, this isn't you. The thing that I find tricky is how do you know when it's not you? I think that for a lot of people who struggle with something like addiction, people have told them there was something going on before they themselves are ready to see it in that way. Yeah. Right. And so I, I personally find it difficult. I, again, I think that there are certain ways where it feels very crystal clear to me, but I think even when people are struggling and trying to figure out their sexuality, trying to figure out their gender, they go through the same thing as with addiction. But to me, 
the outcomes are differentially beneficial in the sense that sometimes you just don't know when to listen to people. Yeah. And, 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 and it seems like sometimes it sort of feels like, Hey, it's the village. It's not you. Right. Right. And there are times again, where from, for me, it feels like it's so obvious when that is true in certain situations. Certainly it's not for the people who are going through it and, and whether it's something that needs to kind of happen, in my opinion, in a positive way, which is embracing gender, embracing sexuality, or needs to stop in a more negative way, which is something like addiction, there's this sort of, these are certain things that are more, in my mind, more clear cut, but it rarely feels clear cut. And it definitely isn't clear cut for a lot of people when they struggle with something like depression or anxiety, where you're getting feedback from people and it's like, you don't know what to take in and what to dismiss. Yeah. And I'm just kind of curious from, from your perspective, if you have a kind of North star for how to figure out, all right, I'll listen to everything, but this is the feedback I'm going to put in the take seriously box. And this is the feedback I'm going to put in the, it's not me, it's you. Box. Yeah. It's definitely hard. I don't know if I can think of a North star. I know in my experience, like coming out, I came out into a church that kicked me out and had a, plenty of feedback from a lot of people in my life that was not helpful. If anything, my North star in all that was myself, was my own. I had to trust my own self and my own heart, my own gut and my own experience. You know, I think when I was coming out, I was told being gay is evil and it's unnatural and it's lustful and it's like all these things. And I was like, I didn't have a lot of experience, but I was like, well, this boy that I like, we like hold hands in the car and like he opens the door for me at the restaurant. Like that seems pretty nice and sweet. Maybe one way of filtering is like, if, if someone else is talking about a part of my experience and they are not saying it exists, they're not saying it's real and they're not giving it the respect it deserves, yeah. wh whatever it is, that is a starting point for being like, okay, that, that is where it's like, look, may, maybe somewhere down the road, we're going to have a, a constructive conversation about something. But right now, yeah, if you are saying to me that like, oh, you were born you were born one way and you can't be another way or you you feel this but you shouldn't feel that it's like i'm going to start with this exists this is real i'm giving it the respect it deserves and i'll entertain conversations from people who want to do the same yeah and I and maybe i don't know maybe the only, maybe that's a starting point i don't know if that feels right to you i think it definitely does i think the, I mean, even for lack of a less like clicky word, like the validation of having someone in those moments, whether it's, uh, I mean, for me now I'm thinking about sexuality, but in those moments, like it's so powerful to sit with someone, no matter what they think, if there's, if they're validating that, or even just like, wow, that sounds so hard. And especially in a coming out situation, I think for me, I was still learning so much about myself and I couldn't come. It took me years to say I'm gay out loud, like even by myself in sleeping on my couch for two years, half 
out of my mind trying to say the words and just crying myself to blacked out oblivion of I can't even say this to myself. So then it did become really powerful when <clears throat> I did come out in a kind of a terrible situation to this guy at this church who was like the gay grandfather of the church and was like, I'm gay, but I'm not gay. You know, I found God and now I'm, and he's celibate and he wrote a book and I, he blocked me on all social media because I <laughs> kind of shared my thoughts uh, and opinions <clears throat> and experience. Um, but then coming out to other, to other people that simply just validated that. And, and even friends that were in the church where they're like, well, this sounds really difficult because that, what are they, what are they saying? And then sort of bringing other feedback to other people and having them be like, it's sort of nice too, to have that sort of outside perspective of someone that knows your experience and can hear and can help you decipher what is for you and what is not for you. But I really just tried to follow my gut. I just, especially in my coming out, like I, it was met with so much disapproval and denial. And I sort of just always knew in me, like, I don't, I'm not, I don't practice really any religion at this point. I still carry with me some beautiful things I think that exist from religion, but it, they did me pretty dirty. And, and one of the things that I always latched onto was this idea of love of, okay, the golden rule is love your neighbor and, and, and love yourself and spread love. And so when I was coming out and I was like this being gay to me and for me and in my life is my capacity to love. And that is a really, really, I have goosebumps just thinking about that. I think love like real love, whether it's romantic or platonic, friendship, family, love. That is the, I think, I mean, it's why I write all my songs about it. It's the best. Oh my gosh. It's like, that is that human connection. And that like, I'm here for you. I celebrate you. I see you. I want the best for you. I'll hold the door when you walk into a restaurant. That connection to me and the capacity for that is beautiful. And and if there is this God who's all-knowing and created every petal of every beautiful flower, then I don't, I never could understand, if it doesn't make sense, not true, if I could never understand how my capacity to love could be unnatural or evil when it is two consenting adults that are confessing their love for each other and their respect for each other adoration, admiration. And so I kind of, if anything, that was sort of my North Star to to then be like, let me find my own way here. I ended up finding like the Gay Christian Network. I went to the first national conference. I actually just saw a friend uh, when I played in Dallas who I met there and hadn't seen in 10 years. Um, and I found a bunch of churches out here, Christ Church in the Valley, where there was a trans worship leader and I was just like a puddle because I'm like these, that room was filled with people who had been banished from churches that they probably grew up in. And rather than saying, well, screw all this, it led that I have goosebumps again. It led them to, to create their own beautiful space of <clears throat> we're Christian people and we're going to make our own little heaven on earth. And we're going to, here's our own room and we're going to come here every Sunday and we're going to remind ourselves and each other 
of our faith and and that our faith validates who we are and celebrates who we are and our capacity to love is a beautiful thing. And I think especially seeing that really flipped a switch in me of like a village, it can be really small or really big. In my experience, that church, if I put the, that's the village, I drove down the street and went to this place and it was a completely different experience. And I think sometimes you can't see that when you're in something. It feels like the whole world is against me. And sometimes the whole world is against you. Oh, can I, can I, so, so that, that I'm, I'm piecing this together, right? And I'm thinking to myself, okay, it has the right to exist. It has, it's real. It's the respect it deserves and love. Those North stars make a lot of sense. That very simple thing of like, are you, are you interfering? If, if I'm not hurting somebody else, and this is something that, that is is creating a sense of love between two consenting adults then it's sort of like and it feels real and i'm giving it the respect it deserves then i can say okay there's something wrong with the village now the now the thing that i then come to is what happens when we're the ones who are not recognizing that there's something that's interfering with love like as an example with addiction Right. Where you're now people are saying and it's like they're the ones saying, hey, something is happening within you that's interfering with with our love. Like you're not as present and you're not as sensitive and you're doing things that are dangerous. And it's it's not only creating problems from from you to me, but I'm scared for you. And we just don't. And we're the ones to some degree in that moment who are kind of the village. Yeah. And we don't and we're almost on the on the on the opposing side of love and health and well-being. And so the question is, have you ever been it? Were, were you ever in that situation where it was like the love message was actually like trying to get to you, but you, you couldn't see it? Or once it went to the love frequency, did did you like, hey, I, I can feel this is coming from love. So I'm going to I'm going to pay attention more. I'm going to now start to question myself a little bit more. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think in the context, in the context of, of drinking. Yeah. I mean, I definitely had friends like that reminds me of one picture. That's a literal picture that exists on someone's phone in some cloud somewhere of one of my best friends towards the end of my year after my first uh, run at sobriety. And I was on my friend's balcony kind of leaning over like this. I was, had a bottle of champagne between my legs she was coming up behind me trying to grab it in a very serious way. And I'm cracking up laughing and you can't really see her face. And the, so the picture looks like this really fun picture where my friend is just has her arms around me while I'm like blacked out on my friend's porch, like in my underwear, whatever. And that moment really stuck with me. And we've, I've talked about it with my friend before of like how sort of how funny now it's funny that is of like how a picture it really is worth a thousand words because you have no idea what's going on it looks like this fun picture and it's like not fun at all and i had even even the day i got sober i got a dui and i went to burbank county overnight and i called my one call was to my manager at the time who's still like my guardian angel in this life amanda and she picked me up and it was it was a serious time I think I got out and I was like, oh, I wonder if we're going to, uh, how's this going to go? Am I going to like blow this off and be like, that was crazy. What a crazy night. 
never spent a night in jail. And it wasn't that. And she sort of, over the next maybe five to seven days, I was never alone. And I bounced from friend to friend to friend um, because I knew that I was going to go to treatment. And I knew that if I was alone, that I would, I didn't know what would happen. And so that sort of week was a lot of kind of seeing that sort of love, the sort of tough love. And I remember like I was smoking cigarettes inside my apartment and she was just like, you have to stop. This is disgusting. And this is gross. And you need to like get your life together. And I don't know what you're doing. And it was sort of like, whoa. And then it was sort of like, oh, you're kind of right. Um, and sort of just acknowledging I think it's hard, too, because you don't necessarily want to acknowledge that you've done anything wrong. And addiction, I do think, is sort of delicate because I don't view it as like I did all these things. It's this weird, like this thing inside me. You know, it's not like a blanket to go excuse any anything. But I think seeing the the people around me sort of offer that tough love can really make it ran really made me look in myself and be like, dang, like this is that thing where I'm trying to not look at something and everyone else is looking right at it and saying, look at this. And I'm like, I don't want to look at that because that scares the life out of me. It's so interesting to me because it's like, and maybe that's that final common pathway where it's like, because I am sure that when people were talking to you about sexuality, they were saying it was coming from love and we really care about you and what you're doing is wrong, whatever. And it's like, and, and it's hurtful and look at all these. And it's like, but you knew, but somehow, and maybe it's that final common personal filter where you say, okay, this is, this is the input I'm getting. Now I'm going to run it through like the me machine. And sort of be like, okay, does this feel like love? Are they acknowledging things that have a right to exist? Is is Am I going to be more or less loving if I follow this path? Yeah. And and maybe, maybe in that situation, you were able to say like, look, when it comes to sexuality, the answer is no, I, I'm not going to be more loving. I'm going to be less loving. And I'm not feeling what you're saying as something you may think it's loving or maybe you don't or but it's it, that's not really all that important what's important is that when i put it through my own filter you are not acknowledging something about me that is real you are not acknowledging something that has to exist you are not acknowledging something that has to be treated with respect and i am not going to be a more loving person because of it yeah but if you can do the same process where the same the same like attitude for people and sort of and you know instead of saying like look this is the problem of the village when it comes to sexuality, but then like when people are talking to you to say, I'm going to put it through the same thing. Like, is this going to help me love more or less? And if the answer is more, doesn't mean that you are then beholden to those people, but at least now you are kind of owning the conversation because it's about what is going to help me love, what is going to help me validate, what's going to help me be respectful of my experience. Maybe, I don't know if that feels I'm trying to piece it together in my head. Yeah. If that feels right to you. That that actually it does. And I think I can sort of see that in in both things. And that also and this is semi tangent, but I remember and I still to this day try to hold space and in my religious upbringing grace for when people would come at me and, and it's different. I had one 
guy from this church come at me at like my best friend's 30th birthday where I he was telling me about my how for eternity I'll be eternally separated from everyone I love and ev- like because I'll be burning in hell and whatever. What And I'm missing, meanwhile, I'm missing them sing happy birthday to like my best friend for his 30th birthday. I'm like, this is, this is not coming from love. And I think even I've had people in my life come to me with a similar message that I felt this is misguided love. And it's such a weird and difficult thing to reason and find some sort of balance of when someone does believe something so true. And I think it's hard for a lot of queer people that that are in a faith community because you, when someone has such a strong conviction and they're telling you this and they're sharing, they're crying, like not that crying means whatever, but like you can feel this like, oh my gosh, you really want what's best for me. And this is what you think is best for me. It's really hard then to decipher. And I think at that point was when I sort of, separated from a lot of people so that I could figure out that I could turn on the me machine. I like that. And, and see, and then to go back to those people years later and to even have family members. I had one family is one thing I don't totally dive into head first, but I had a family member come to me once maybe two, three years after I came out that maybe wasn't the most accepting and, and say randomly we're at lunch, like you seem so happy. And I have, I mean, I, I was like, that is so nice. And like, you seem so much less anxious. Like you seem like you're just sitting in your body at lunch, like eating your lunch and you seem joyful and happy and like baseline, like good. And I'm like, that is the best feedback that I have (laughs) maybe ever received. Because it's that thing of you can then go back to those people and be like, hey, I think you actually need to look at this differently. And I can see that you maybe came from a place of love. I have to tell you, incredibly dangerous things that you said. And I don't mean that as a judgment on you. I know your beliefs. I know your convictions. And I don't think as queer people, we owe that to someone. Because I do think people can do things in the name of love, in the name of religion, that are atrocious. I mean, we've uh, hello history. And even on a personal level, that sort of like, I can get so heated and have no empathy, no understanding, and no reason to have any understanding for someone that in the name of love, in the name of God is telling someone you're wrong, you're evil, you're unnatural. I think at, at its best intention, they have no idea how dangerous that literally people are killing themselves over something that you said, over something a pastor says on the pulpit. I can't, I can't, I don't know if I can name something less godly, more ungodly, more evil. Talk about like the devil, how he works in mysterious ways and he'll corrupt the truth so that it becomes a lie. I'm like, that's right there. If if something you're teaching and preaching is causing harm, physical harm, ending lives, that's literally true. And I think that is something that I try to to kind of talk about a lot and also something that is really specific and kind of niche maybe, but the people that have felt that can really understand like how just mind-boggling, life-boggling it is 
to grow up believing something, you believe in this God and created heaven and earth and all this nice, wonderful stuff, and then have it flipped on you in such a pointed way, creates such hopelessness where it is sort of like what, I, I mean, when I wrote my, my, the note, I was in treatment and I was almost, I almost came out. I was 20 years old. I almost came out to the chaplain at the rehab center because I was in Texas, of course. And I'm so glad that I didn't. And I can look back and be like, I wish I came out when I was 16. Like I would have had all these years to like get a jump start on what that is. And the truth, I think, and it's not even worth saying what would have been or could have been. But even when I came out in my early mid twenties, I came out as like, I'm going to pray this away and it's going to be fine. And so if I came out when I was 16, I kind of think I would have literally prayed that away. And then what kind of danger does that set? That puts me on a really treacherous path. And I think that's where that, that sort of love, that's where the me machine, I think, I love me machine. I think that's where that really comes in is like, sometimes you're in a place where you can trust no one but yourself. And that's a lot of pressure. And that's why for me, like, I feel like an sort of accidental activist, like I never thought I'd make it out of the closet alive. So now that I did, I'm like, oh my gosh, like y'all, it's going to be okay. I swear it's going to be really hard and it's going to be, you might see a brick wall and have no way around it, but I promise you it's going to be like the whole, it's going to get better. It's like, sometimes it takes eight years for it to get better. But I think that's where the me machine can be really, really, if you can cultivate within yourself the ability to really sit with something and almost whether it's meditation or prayer or what, some mysterious thing where you just sit there and you're like, what feels right here? And I think if it has anything to do with sexuality or gender identity, you trust yourself because you are, I'm the only me. I'm the only one that knows what's going on in me. And even sitting and talking to a trans person, the two trans kids that inspired the village, like getting to know them and getting to talk to them and getting to, to feel their experience. It's like, whoa, you follow yourself. You are the only person who truly understands what it means to, to love yourself in that. I mean, you're the only one that has all the information. Yeah. One of the things that, I think you write a song like The Village and there are going to be people who use that to get through these times there. I mean, a lot of times when we have all of this lack of clarity, like the discrepancy between how we feel and what makes us happy and what people are saying, what we go to music for that, because somehow and I don't know if it's a trust issue, like we trust our artists or if it's a feel issue that we just know when something feels right. The evidence is that people are using your music for that purpose, which is a wonderful thing. Were there artists' songs, albums that, whether it was dealing with addiction or sexuality or any of the the things that you've that you've struggled with or been forced to struggle with, is probably a better term. In some cases, is is that you use and you were like this this really helped me through. Definitely the the two that come to the front of my mind are there's an artist called Aqualung who is my number one favorite artist in the history of the world I have told him this multiple times I actually have his writing of the title of the song in my safe so that I can tattoo it on my body one day it's a song called easier to lie 
And it's sort of a perfect example of how a thousand people can listen to the same song and think it's about a thousand different things. The kind of line from the song is to bear the weight and push into the sky. It's easier to lie. It's easier to lie. And that for me, as I was coming out, I, that was like, it was almost the song that inspired me to lie. Like not like in the best way, but I knew at the time, this is what I, you know, like closeted me. It gave me so much hope because I sort of gave me a purpose as to like, I'm not going to open that door right now. And I know that I have reasons why that I still to this day think are, I did the right thing for me. Um, and that song really was sort of like a shoulder for me to be like, it's going to be okay. One day I will bear the weight and I will push into that sky. But for now, it's easier to lie. And it really, I mean, that song still to this day is just one of my favorite songs ever. And the other one is a song by Kirk Franklin called Imagine Me. Um, and that I listened to through a lot of my church journey. And it it took on so many different meetings because I think when I was first listening to it, it was like, imagine me like free of same sex attraction or whatever. And then it sort of flipped into like, imagine me like, it's imagine me being free, trusting you totally. Finally, I can imagine me. And it, it just became this message of hope to me of like, imagine me after all this, when this disaster cloud parts, imagine me looking up at the sky maybe holding hands with my boyfriend, looking into each other's eyes, being like, we, we made it, we did it. This thing that we never ever thought we'd make it out of. I think that's another, not to digress, but I think that's another thing that's really, really good for us all to do is to have moments of acknowledgement of when, not when you've moved on, because that's fake, but when you've made it through, when that, like, that disaster trash fire cloud has parted to take a moment to be like, oh my God, I made it out of this. And I'm right here. And for me, it was, we're here. We did this. That church is over there now. And we're over here. And I never thought that would happen. Well, Stephen and or Rabel, thank <laughs> you so much for taking the time. It is, it's really been great to talk to you about this stuff. And it was great to sort of like get acquainted with your music and, and start to see it. I just wish you the best of luck on the ongoing success with your career. It's fantastic. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the thoughtful talk and the, and the time. I love this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So just talk again. Me too. So there it is. Rabel and I talking about how he understood and incorporated the feedback he got from others regarding his sexuality and addiction on his mental health journey. Now, there's so much we can take away from the conversation with Rabel, but one thing that I want to focus on was something Rabel said right at the end of the discussion. He discussed how important it is for us to take a moment and acknowledge when we made it out of something difficult, and we are still here. So often when we struggle, such as with mental illness or social pressure to not live our authentic gender or sexuality, we will work so hard to get through this difficult time. And that is such a wonderful accomplishment. But unfortunately, we don't take a moment or a series of moments to remind ourselves of what we just did. What a great accomplishment it is to survive one more day under difficult circumstances and to cope to the point where we can lead a happier, healthy, and more authentic life. 
Sometimes, unfortunately, we see the struggle as a sign of weakness and failure rather than as a sign of strength and accomplishment. And we need to look at this through the me machine lens Rabel and I discussed. What is a way of looking at our struggle that is loving and kind, that will help us be loving to ourselves and others? And recognizing ourselves when we struggle with and overcome obstacles and encouraging ourselves to continue to have the strength to keep going is a loving act that we need to keep remembering to do for ourselves and others on our mental health journey. I want to thank Rabel for this wonderful conversation. This season of Going There is brought to you by AbV, who is driving the pursuit of better mental health. Over the last 30 years, AbV's scientists and clinicians have worked to tackle the complexity of mental illness and today offer a portfolio of medicines and a pipeline of innovation that spans depression, anxiety, bipolar 1 disorder, and schizophrenia. To learn more about AbV's work to support individuals throughout their mental health journey, please visit www.abv.com or follow at AbV on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and LinkedIn. And I, of course, want to thank Consequence Podcast Network and Sound Mind Live for including me in this wonderful project. And thanks to Pete Wilson and the Rooks for letting us use their song, I Know. If you are struggling with anxiety, depression, or addiction and are looking for help, please call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration National Helpline at 1-800-622-4357. If you're thinking about harming yourself and want to seek help, please contact the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. You may also go to the Sound Mind Live and Consequence websites for more information. So be healthy, be safe, and be kind to yourself and others. See you next time at The Crossroads. Greetings from Longtime No See, the podcast. Every week, we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! What would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. Worst date you've been on? A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my God, Jack almost fell off his chair. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast.